0: The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh and Quequitlam peoples. It's December 3rd, 2021, and there are 316 days left until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good to be back with you, listeners. It has been a wet and wild couple of weeks here uh, in Vancouver, and glad that we appear to be, at least today, having a bit of dry weather.
1: Yeah, yesterday was really nice. I managed to get out into town, took the SkyTrain. Today looks... Not quite as nice, but it's not raining. It's just overcast out here. So mm-hmm. I'll take it, but we're not here to talk about the weather. Are we?
0: No, we are here to talk about municipal politics and shapes and, and shapes. Yeah. So by way of explanation and to renew our long running series charts on a podcast, <laughs> Mark Merrison has tweeted out something, a Venn diagram on what he apparently believes about municipal government. It's one of those pick two triangles effectively. I want stable services. I want low density and I want low taxes. It shows that you can't have all three. Then Melissa Genova comes and
1: says something odd. Turn the circles into squares and you can achieve more while fulfilling the mandate of local government. What on earth does she mean? No one knows. Literally no one knows. Some people have like tried and they managed to create a Venn diagram of squares that shows the same thing as Mark was showing other people. I th- think quote tweeted her and showed some like weird challenges of like, maybe the dream on exists in the square in the middle. But... I like the one where
0: it says functional city council, and then just has a little annotation.
1: Ha next to it. This was the joke of Van Pauly Twitter for the week, because no one can understand how turning circles into squares magically solves the budget crisis, which is the focus of today's show.
0: Yes, it is budget time here in Vancouver. And that means the staff report and staff presentation on the budget have come forward to city council, and it is interesting and worth paying attention to. There's also police funding that is coming forward as well, as probably the headline for property owners, the 5% property tax increase in the city. What does this mean in terms of what exactly is a 5% property tax increase?
1: Yeah. So I'm not going to get into how mill rates work because they're confusing and it takes a bit, but it's important to remember property taxes aren't actually that much. You know, the average single family homeowner in Metro Vancouver is probably paying. to $4,000 a year. So a 5% increase ends up being $137 for the median single-family home in Vancouver over the year. That's $10 extra a month. Compare that to what rent is likely to increase for many listeners. Uh, The average condo owner would see an increase of $57. Commercial owners are facing potentially a little bit more, $257, but their properties tend to be worth more and are taxed at a slightly higher rate because they don't vote anymore. uh,
0: they do not. And whether they should or not, I think is a question worth debating,
1: but that's not the topic of today's show. So this is what staff have brought forward, right? 5% is not set in stone. It's what the mayor said he wanted council to approve and council approved as a maximum for whatever reason he ran on that about a year ago. And so staff have tried to balance various increasing needs and desires of council to address things like affordability and homelessness and the housing crisis building a resilient economy increasing focus on equity and social issues and adapting to climate change we've talked about a lot of these issues they cost money and here's where it kind of hits the pavement hits the train hits the sky train rails as it were
0: yeah well they've they've grasped that third rail they've They've they found that like there has been a greater increase in or greater willingness to pay for the tax increase when the dollar values are mentioned rather than the percent increase. There's also expected to be a 6.1% blended utility fee increase, which means that the total increase of tax and utilities together will be 5.4%. There's also expected to be a recreation fee increase of 2 to 5% with licenses and permits also going up by 5% this means that there's $9 million in one-time funding and $1 million in ongoing
1: funding available for council priorities. Yeah, so staff made a bit of wiggle room for council to come forward and say, I would like to propose an amendment that we fund my pet project because this is so important to the voters, blah, 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 the stuff that happens every year. So if council is super eager and wants to fund a lot more, they need to find more money for that, whether that's increasing the overall budget or telling staff what gets cut. Because in here, they've already cut a number of things. Engineering is getting a 2.8% cut. Uh, Human resources is getting 5.9%. Mayor and council's budget's being reduced by 8.6%. And the city manager's office is being reduced by 8.1%. Which is quite, you know, deep cuts in many of those departments. If you were told like your office now has 8% less funding next year, even as costs and inflation are rising and salaries are expected to increase,
0: people are going to lose jobs. People are going to lose jobs and the council's effectiveness in particular might be reduced though. How much one could possibly reduce it from the current operating levels is a open question, I suppose. It's worth putting this in context, both a regional context and and, and generally across Canada. Can, Canada, in general, has much higher property taxes than Vancouver. And even though Vancouver's property taxes are slightly above average for the medium single family homes. In metro Vancouver, yeah. In metro Vancouver, yes. It, they are generally quite low, both in terms of absolute numbers and in terms of the percentage tax homeowners are expected to pay. For example, Vancouver median family home owners will be expected to pay about $4,460 in property taxes over the coming year. This is in context uh, compared to somewhat of an outlier in West Vancouver, where it's $6,446. Next highest is $5,002 in New Westminster, all the way down to the bottom of Uh, Langley City, where people are expected to pay
1: $3,305. It's cheap to live out there, I guess. Yes. Also, really highlights the challenges facing West Vancouver's refusal to uh, densify and put more people to extract more money from.
0: It's almost like that Venn diagram that Mark Marison tweeted out at the beginning was
1: actually accurate. (laughs) Almost. Almost like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, looking across Canada, a lot of cities do have to pay expensive amounts of money in the winter for snow removal that we thankfully just barely try here. We don't need to maintain fleets and fleets of snow plows because we just kind of call it a day when it snows and everyone takes it off. Not everyone, obviously, but we we can be a little less vigorous on our snow removal because it's so infrequent. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, if if it snows infrequently enough that the city can just shut down for an entire day, then (laughs) that's probably worth it to, to keep property taxes
1: a little lower, especially since cost of living costs are, are notably higher out here. But I think we've also seen in the past year that climate effects and, you know, the mitigation and resiliency we need to start building into our infrastructure are going to create a new kind of cost for us, and I guess as the Climate Emergency Action Plan gets rolled out. We're going to see how we fund that. Before we pivot kind of to that, let's talk about at least one department that is getting a bump, a raise, depending on your framing. It is an increase over last year, but it may be a cut depending on how you want to spin the numbers. We're talking about the police budget now.
0: Yeah. And if you want to refer to this on your your own very own copy of the uh, staff presentation, which will be linked in our show notes, is set to get, uh, the VPD is set to get $321.8 million, which is up $5.4 million from 2021, an increase of 1.7%.
1: So that's what staff have recommended. Now, the Vancouver Police Board just a couple of days ago did their own budget, which they put to the city and they ask for $325.8 million. They want four more million dollars than staff are set to give them. They want a 2.97% increase. And they say if they only get a 1.7% increase, that's actually a, quote, direct budget cut and will require a reduction in service levels and a delay of hiring 34 additional officers. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if that's how
0: budget should be considered to work. The mayor, in a stunning show of leadership, boldly told the police board to uh, read the room and, oh, wait, no, he didn't. So instead, Kennedy has said, quote, there does seem to be this kind of thing that I'm anti-police or something, which is
1: not true. Don't worry, Kennedy. We didn't think that. I guess some people out there generally do like the people who don't follow counsel too closely. I don't think anyone has been like, oh man, Kennedy Stewart's like a rah-rah blue lives matter type or thin blue line type by any stretch. But I think the general tenor in the average citizenry might be to look at Kennedy, know he's got an NDP background, figure he's kind of a lefty and therefore has bought the defund the police narrative. And he's here to dispel you of that belief. He says in terms of contracts, we can't sign on and not on. Highlighting why he is going to support the VPD's request for more money over what staff have recommended. It's labor costs, he says. It's not like they're off buying helicopters or something. This is labor costs for the boots on the ground. So I do think we have to make room in the budget for that. Now, the staff budget presented here, and even the VPD one, says it does not include the impact of collective agreements and those will get factored in after the fact anyway, what the budget is actually doing is saying how many effectively, how big and bloated should we allow the police budget to get? How many people should they be putting on the ground? What kind of other investments should they be making? So I think flagging the contractual obligations is kind of irrelevant. Any department, like there are labor contracts to deal with engineering, the city manager's office, and so forth but Kennedy seems not as concerned by those ones
0: no no because
1: god forbid someone perceive you as being anti-police it's generated it's- quite a lot of controversy at council as well there's a hundred another hundred and some odd speakers lined up many of whom have already had the chance to say their two two cents their 5 minutes and get grilled by councillors i know one notably was one speaker who was in favor of increasing the budget was asked by Councillor Boyle, do you work for the police? To which the speaker said, "Uh, yes, but I didn't want to disclose that as it might make me appear biased. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Many other speakers at council were quite adamant that council take a more hard line, reduce, or eliminate the police budget, I think the chance of it going to zero is pretty nil. Oh, yeah, it's zero. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, like,
0: policing services provide some value to a city. Like, it is important that many of the functions that the police are carrying out are carried out in the city. I think is unfortunate is a lack of conceptual reimagining of a police budget so that many of these functions might be better carried out by other agencies or other entities.
1: Yeah. In the Vancouver police's presentation to council, which is, as you kind of alluded to, pages 64 to 79 of the staff presentation, it's quite interesting to see the police's spin on why they need the extra money, why they're hat in hand before council. and you know, they flag like selective crime stats, like graffiti is up. And did you know 4.7 people per day, Matthew, are being assaulted by strangers? We're not talking about exactly how funding more police would stop that or do anything to deal with that, but you should be afraid and therefore you should give money to the police. They also flag how police budgets across the country are rising and they also flag just the number of increasingly complex calls they're making. So, you know, calling back to your recommendation that we should be thinking more about how we structure public safety and respond to the various calls, the police, I think, are trying to show that they want the money to do it themselves. Or maybe, you know, maybe they are working with health professionals or others that they need to, but they need more money to do that. And they can't take it from existing
0: funds. Yeah, we can only hope. And hope is probably we're going to be doing because
1: I am not optimistic. So the other thing that came out is just before the budget debate started, Kennedy Stewart released this Twitter thread and press release saying he has a new progressive climate emergency action levy, which will ensure the climate emergency plan is succeeded by putting where our mouth is. And so he announces this proposal in a, you know, a three tweet thread, he says, We need to find funding and we need this levy, which will raise a hundred million dollars over the next decade to fight climate change. Mm -hmm. But nowhere in there or the press release when he put this out a week ago, did he say what it is or how it works? So people just got confused.
0: Yeah, I'm confused. I'm like primarily confused by the fact that he wants this money and is willing to hit homeowners to do it rather than which, I mean, I guess. I guess it's philosophically consistent if you don't want to be targeting renters, but you know, like he should know better. He should know that property tax increases get passed along to renters just as much as anyone else. And so he could have actually targeted the people who have
1: the large polluting.
0: It's so frustrating.
1: Yeah. So his plan, as it's kind of leaked out, been revealed in he will put it forward, I suspect, as an amendment that he will need the votes to pass, is an additional 1% property tax hike. So instead of that 5% we just talked about, people will see a 6%. And this will make up for his not approving the parking fee, you know, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. That part of the climate plan that staff had recommended would have raised 44 to $72 million over 10 years. This will raise $100 million. So that's better, though. Yeah, except the total cost of the staff reported climate plan is
0: about $230 million in extra revenue over 10 years. Yeah, that's the hole that they were trying to fill. So we still need more money. Yeah, we still need both
1: of those things. In fact, both of them would be insufficient, indeed. The other thing Kennedy has recently done as well is re-released his making room plan. That was the sixplex idea to try to allow single-family homeowners or you know, people on single-family zones, which are now duplex zones in Vancouver, to be four to sixplex and do it as a pilot project. That got kicked down the road of consultation and review by staff to probably never be seen again. Instead, he raised this idea that he's been touring on and talking to people about, but not brought before council, I think it'll come in the new year, called Making Home, which is the exact same plan, but possibly with a land value capture tax. Yeah, and so maybe that land value capture tax will provide the additional
0: funding. It's, why isn't he working with, like, it seems like he's just decided to give up on the actual business of governing a little bit and is focusing on winning re-election. That's what politics becomes, doesn't it? Yeah, it it really does, and it's very disappointing. But Like you still, if you are an incumbent, you have to run on a record of what you're able to do, not the
1: plans that you're proposing. Like what is happening? Like maybe, and he's trying, I think, to avoid throwing his progressive colleagues under the bus. You know, it doesn't want yet to single out the greens or cope or I don't think. He and Christine Boyle have differed on too many policies, other than like the parking vote. But yeah, it's it's a really frustrating strategy to see this kind of trying to you know present ideas but do them in a campaign approach without any clear path to making them a reality. Like if he had announced either of these plans with councilors standing beside him who were ready to vote for it they would look more credible.
0: Yeah, and and this is the same kind of problem that I have with both Christine Boyle and Kennedy Stewart is that they they come up with, like, great-sounding plans. They don't really have a plan to get them passed, and that's what your job is. Your job is to build the coalition in order to make the change that you see as
1: necessary happen. So let's talk about the like the mechanics of getting this 1% property tax levy through, right? He needs the votes for it. He's already said he's increasing the police budget, so he needs money for that. Like, he wants to in- approve the police budget increase of $4 million between staff and VPD. That needs mm-hmm. up, like, half of the one-time funding and all of the ongoing funding that council have allotted. He can increase the levy by 1%, to cover his climate plan, but then he's still got to cut other certain, like his math doesn't even work. And then when it comes to getting the votes, okay, you can get for a climate levy, Boyle Swanson, probably she's got no problem taxing homes, probably Adrian Carr, I think she can be brought onto this. Yeah. You still have to. Fry and Michael Weeb are, are kind of wild cards on this. And you're not going to get any of the ex-NPAs or MDG. Yeah. So it's a really tough sell. Yeah. Versus you were the deciding vote on the parking f- money. Yeah, that would have been a, a huge chunk of
0: change uh, that would have been able to go towards your priorities. It's it's perplexing. So why don't we take a look at what the people campaigning
1: to replace him are proposing? Yeah, Ken Sim put out a new, I don't know, editorial responding to the mayor's state of the city address, and he's laid out a few new policy proposals. You know, the first part of it just criticizes the mayor as someone who is running to be mayor should do. And so I don't think we need to review that, but the big idea in here is the three by three by three permit mandate. Yes. And good luck with that. So. This is Sim's pitch to clear the permitting backlog, the idea that, you know, anyone trying to build or do anything in the city of Vancouver is dying before their project is completed. <laughs> Ken Sim wants to simplify the whole thing in the most bizarre way I've ever seen. I don't know. It's different. It's it's not bizarre. It's, it's
0: like a way to make the issue salient and compact enough for a Stump speech. Right. Uh, so and, and what he is proposing is having a three by three by three permit mandate, which means that for simple retrofits and business permits, the maximum time allowed would be to approve a permit would be three days for pre-approved builds with plans by accredited professionals, IE like what the Vancouver specials usually were, that would be three weeks and for consultations with initial approvals on major works, three months which means there is going to be this clock running in the planner's office that would see automatic approvals be issued when
1: the clock ran out. And and this is like the thing that is is totally mind-boggling. So on paper, it kind of almost sounds good. Like it sounds like a clear, all right, there's deadlines. We got to get this done. Otherwise, it just goes through and that's that's good, right? We want things to get billed, right? Why is it mind-boggling, Matthew? You have a little more hands-on with the planning side of this.
0: Yeah. So that's just not how, that's not how the planning office works. And, and sometimes like sometimes the, the process of, of trying to develop a lot in going back and forth between the city of Vancouver and, and the applicant, a a much more complicated one that can be encapsulated within this mandate There are a lot of things that the city has to consider. And I like, can't believe that I'm defending the city in this one, because like, I, I, I tend to think that there are problems with the permitting system. I just don't think that having this drop dead clock is necessarily the best way of, uh, ensuring that Vancouver gets speedy building approvals.
1: There, there should be some other mechanism for doing that yeah to like make it really concrete and tangible say i apply for permits to remodel part of my house something structural that requires permits and i apply and staff have some questions about whether it conforms with the building code because maybe there's something a little weird with that and the three days elapse and suddenly my permit is just automatically approved even though my plans may not conform to BC building code. And suddenly I'm constructing and approved to construct something that might be not fire or, you know, structurally safe. Yeah. That would be
0: bad. It would be bad. And how can we actually fix this? Like there does need to be a, a greater effort to speed up building approvals in Vancouver. I think we can all agree on that. You hi- you do that by hiring more planners, by changing the culture in the planning office, producing a mandate to like, try and get to yes, not institute a, a thing which effectively hamstrings the planning office from doing its job in a diligent and appropriate
1: manner. Because this also s- strikes me as somewhat open to abuse, like. If I'm a dodgy developer who just wants to get something approved, I know it's going to be approved in three months if I make it complicated enough that staff have no chance of reasonably and effectively reviewing it in that time, or it gets abused in the other way and staff just start denying things, you know, in three days, minus a minute in three months, minus a day.
0: Yeah. And, and I can definitely see both of those things being possible outcomes of this, like If there is, not that I have thought this out particularly well, but like if there was some other mechanism that allowed an appeal to happen or an appeal to another body to happen after that three-day, three-week, three-month mandate, then I can see that happening. I mean, it would create more work for the Board of Variants, which is the body that exempts people from building code or bylaws that the city has put in place but like I, I don't think that saying just oh blanket approval 3
1: weeks have elapsed is an appropriate way of of running a city so maybe more details will come out maybe we're being a bit unfair to mr sim and i mean i, do I appreciate would... that it's bold right it's something
0: yeah and like i i think that staff will hate it uh, and There will be a ton of resistance from within city hall. And so this might end up being like the only thing that he ends up trying to do during his term as mayor. This is the kind of thing that can bring down an administration, like can, can cause such internal uh, opposition to something that an an entire administration's agenda gets stymied.
1: Well, it wasn't the only thing Sim highlighted in there. He had another line that was a bit more vague that dealing with I'll, I'll just read it because it kind of puts it all in context. I will engage our officers in tackling the street disorder and chaos that is impacting our communities while addressing the longer term challenges like housing, mental health and drug crisis. And this tries to like, if you go back through that police report to staff that's in the budget presentation, it has this frame. Like, There's a conversation right now that's really divided where one half is convinced that Vancouver in is, a, is in a spiral of chaos and petty crime and violence, especially in you know downtown business districts. Vandalism is up. All of this stuff is happening. Someone needs to take care of it. And there's also this conversation about police brutality, over policing, uh, mental health challenges, the ongoing opioid and overdose, and housing crises, and needs for non policing interventions into those, and decriminalization, for example. Ken Sim wants to apparently do it all. Yeah.
0: And it's nice to know that he's thinking about it, considering that he has a decent chance of winning. Like I, I, I still think that the smart money is on Kennedy Stewart to win re-election, as the power of incumbency is uh, strong, but I will say that it does look like the mayor has been floundering a little in the last couple of months in trying to come up with a coherent and cohesive message. Uh, to run on, seeing as how running on the record that this council has been able to produce is not going to be necessarily the
1: gold star that he might have wanted to put forward. Well, let's pivot to one of the things that might be able to be flagged or might just become an election issue. And when it comes to housing, that's the redevelopment of the city according to the Vancouver plan and one of the first tests of the Vancouver plan is starting to move forward and has the initial approval by council to start studying and that's the redevelopment plans and the community plans for the Renfrew-Rupert Skytrain area, the area east of Nanaimo Street, west of Boundary, uh, south of First Ave and north of 23rd Ave. So where the Superstore and the two Skytrain stations are along there, a lot of single family homes along there, a lot of commercial and industrial land, so a big opportunity for the city.
0: What this is, is a manifestation of Vancouverism, the, the urban planning idea that there should be the development of large towers around points of rapid transit this is the compromise that vancouver has been well using to steadfastly avoid building the missing middle of housing by one perspective for uh, a number of years it's the reason why you can see in marpole large towers right by the marine gateway station and uh, then two blocks away a bunch of single family homes rather than a large amount of uh, you know mid-rise apartments
1: all over over the city and it's a trend that extends quite well throughout the region right it's kind of what burnaby and coquitlam's development is with you know the town center sites in burnaby the four being the major developments there with the major towers here in coquitlam the major towers around city center and burquitlam new west each of them are starting to roll in a little bit more like low rises and townhomes to kind of space out the single-family homes and the towers so they're not always right up against each other. But, you know, those core spots of density is common. And what you miss in the city of Vancouver are a number of these SkyTrain stations that are just outside of downtown. So you have, like, Nanaimo Station, and you have 22nd Ave Station, and you have Rupert and Renfrew, where you have single-family homes within a five-minute walk or less sometimes of... What should be pretty built up by this philosophy.
0: Yeah, and so what this is looking at is densifying the area uh, around these two stations uh, and possibly redeveloping some of the large industrial or commercial spaces that were around there, particularly the former BC Liquor Distribution Branch, which was acquired in 2014 by MST Development and the Aquiline. Yeah,
1: this is interesting. MST is the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Wautuths corporate development arm. And so they bought this with the Aquilini group in 2014 and are looking to develop a mixed industrial commercial rental housing complex there. This would kind of be pulled out as a special redevelopment rezone within this broader plan, but that area is a large, essentially parking lot, low rise industrial building that if they can return into you know, a multi-use mixed area could be quite the hub for this, um, redevelopment.
0: Yeah. And it like, it, it warms my heart. It like gives me some confidence. It is pleasing to me that MST is involved because I've seen some of the, the urban design work that they have, uh, put forward for like the Jericho lands redevelopment in addition to, and they have in general been following the urban design principles closer and more appropriately than i i think some city developments for example or other developers
1: in the city i think there is one clear cha- challenge already that i mean there's a number of challenges with this land like still creek runs through this area and given how the last you know few weeks of flooding has taught us about climate mitigation that's going to be a major factor to think about for some of the lower-lying lands, especially right against the Skytrains. I know in Burnaby around the Costco at Willingdon, that Still Creek part there floods quite regularly and shuts the neighboring roads down. So making sure Still Creek can be preserved for both fish habitat, salmon spawning, etc., but also doing so in a way that enables, I guess, the human built environment to survive catastrophic flooding, as will probably occur too frequently, will be one of those challenges. So currently the interim rezoning is expected as early as
0: early 2022 and finalization of the plans by early 2023. But who
1: knows what an election could do to that? Hopefully, like I'm optimistic about this. This looks like a possibly really good area to make a lot of new homes and really make Vancouver the east side of Vancouver more desirable. But, uh, yeah, everything could go off the rails with the election. I mean, it's already off the rails, but.
0: Oh yeah. We're, we're so far away from the rails that you can't even see them with binoculars.
1: Well, uh, and you can't see the rails from with binoculars from BCIT, which is where a townhome development in Burnaby has come an obscene amount of fire almost a Vancouver level of opposition to a single project. This is 130-unit
0: development by Glentree Village uh, that faced 2.5 hours of opposition at Burnaby City Council. The development would include 84 strata and 46 uh, rental units, 18 at 20% below CMHC median rent uh, for affordability. Originally, this was 208 units, but it has been reduced to 130. and it has come up against a giant wall of opposition.
1: Yeah, Dustin Godfrey has a good write-up in the Burnaby Beacon, and we'll link to that in the show notes. I guess he sat through it, watched it, suffered it for all of us, and, you know, highlights that it's a lot of the usual concerns. There'll be too much traffic. This'll bring garbage trucks across the road that children play on. It's not, you know, someone did, I think, and I think the strongest point a Against this development is that it's in a kind of shit location. Like it's in the they highlight fucking nowhere. Like they highlight I the walk score of it's like 25 out of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in
0: a really bad location, but like, that's not why everyone is opposed to it because like this would, ob- this would obviously end up having to be a, a largely car dependent living space. It is a bunch of townhomes. Some people expected there to be single family homes developed on the area. Currently, the area is an empty lot. There used to be a building there according to the satellite photos, but yeah, the building has been destroyed. Some people have had concerns about the amount of parking. Basically, people are afraid of any change that would impact their sleepy
1: suburban single family home neighborhood. Yeah. One or two of the beakers talked about how they moved out of Vancouver because they wanted some quiet don't want a townhome development to bring the noise of the city.
0: It's like, I, I literally don't understand. Like, I, I don't understand that point of view or that mindset it's.
1: I live in a sleepy suburb now, but I've also lived in condos. I haven't gotten to live in a townhome, but I imagine they're kind of in between slash more closely to my current living situation, which is quite quiet, so. Like, not, they're not putting a mall in. They're not putting a... Yeah, there's no grocery stores there, which they could actually use. Yeah. A council has ultimately voted to direct staff to address the concerns raised and report back, so... Stay tuned. Eventually, that may be addressed.
0: Heading down the SkyTrain line, Surrey City Council has rejected a housing needs report.
1: This is an amazing story. So, staff were directed to report back on the future housing needs, challenges, do consultations on what the state of housing and homelessness is in Surrey. This came to Council and the Safe Surrey Coalition, pretty much together, led by Mayor Doug McCallum, deemed it to be too negative and have sent it back to staff for reworking.
0: Specifically in the report, it was demonstrated that Surrey needs to build an additional 41,200 new homes over the next decade to keep up with population growth and has an immediate need for at least 15,000 below market units or subsidies in the private market. These were based on an online survey of 1,722 residents, as well as nine focus groups with 73 organizations represented.
1: I take it from the comments. I haven't actually read the report itself, but I think it was pretty harsh on the city And the need to do a lot more around homelessness and low-income housing and possibly thinking towards the next election and how they'll frame their record, the Safe Surrey Coalition, disagrees with that take. For example, Councillor Alison Patton said that she, quote, didn't feel like it was balanced and she thinks there needs to be more input from businesses and land developers. To quote, I felt it was a bit too skewed to the social issues and social challenges. I also felt that as a result, it's not representative of the true picture in Surrey. I think it needs to be a lot more positive and uplifting. I just feel we've done such an excellent job, and I'm not, and I'm just not so sure that I really appreciate the feel of this report and what the message it's giving to the community about our city.
0: Yeah, well, you wouldn't, would you? It's It's almost like you haven't done as excellent a job as you feel like
1: you've done. But Matthew, the council is the boss of staff and should not the job of staff be to appease their bosses? I mean, that
0: is the job of staff, but only in a, a in a very roundabout and unfortunate way. We are coming right now to what is effectively the last gasp of any staff project in this election cycle. There, There is time to get this to staff within the... Uh, Few months at the beginning of 2022, but by the time summer rolls around and politicians start actually actively campaigning, that's it. They're done. Uh, Everyone's a lame duck by then, and major staff planning priorities are in huge danger of getting overturned by the next council, becoming a major election issue, or being shelved by the current councillors because they don't want to address major issues right before
1: an election. I should also... Be super clear I was being facetious. the job of staff is not to appease council but to hopefully tell the truth and give an informed take so that council can make the hard decisions. When you have staff and bureaucracy and civil servants that do nothing but just try to tell the electeds or the you know the leaders what they want to hear, you're devolving into you know Soviet Union or any kind of totalitarian state where The truth isn't being shared. Almost like a sneaky dictatorship. Oh, good callback.
0: In other news, Vancouver has
1: rolled out a alertable app. So this was a weird announcement. The city of Vancouver has released its own app that if you live in the city, you need to download if you want to get public alerts from the city. The province has the alert ready system which we've now used once for an active shooter situation in Prince George, I believe it was, but otherwise that system has almost never been used. The alertable app is now the city of Vancouver's thing, and it boggles my mind that they have rolled this out. Yeah, it seems like, well, it seems pretty unreasonable
0: for the city to expect everyone in the jurisdiction to download this app and have it there in a world
1: to be informed about public disasters. This to be clear, this isn't the only, like they're not giving up their standard methods of communicating yeah. about disasters. This is kind of an add on to give extra information, but yeah, expecting 600,000 people to download an app, which right now is only offered in English. Ooh, is, is a choice it's a choice. So download <laughs> it if you live in the city of Vancouver. Yeah, I've,
0: I'm have i going to download it. I want to be informed. I am apparently the target audience as a English speaker, so. In candidate announcement news, there have been a couple of one-city candidate
1: announcements who are uh, planning on running in the upcoming election. Yeah, three more candidates. People on Twitter, at least, that I've seen have put their names forward. Uh, two are run- wanted to seek the one-city council nomination, and one is looking for park board. Nick, he's in our Slack. He's one of our patrons, Nick Lauga. I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name. Sorry, Nick. Has announced he wants to run for council. He's worked with a number of different agencies. Like most people who are running, he says he's never seen himself as a politician, but he does try to want to make the city better. You can find him at N I C K A L A U G A. As well, Iona Bonamis has put her name forward for Council with One City. She. I think that's probably Bonami. Bonami? Yeah. yeah. But she is an urban planner, small business owner, and mother, according to her website. Uh, she's a first generation Chinese Canadian resident and as a senior planner at the city of vancouver so it'll be interesting to see if she makes it forward as well jada natalie stevens at city jada who i suspect many of you are finding because she works for translink doing wayfinding strategy and design she makes many of the maps you've seen and has a really awesome twitter feed at city jada she wants to join the park board for one city which one city didn't run park board candidates last time. So we'll be interesting to see if she, if they do, and if she is one of their nominees. Finally,
0: we have a update on the tiny home, tiny office, uh, tiny problem.
1: So this started as a Vancouverada, this tiny lot that squeezed in between a number of other lots and it makes no sense but it was clearly just like portioned off and now the city is like desperate to force it to be back as part of one of the neighboring lots it was bought because it was for sale earlier this year it was bought by Bryn davidson of lane fab homes he wanted to put one of his tiny homes on the lot he did the city evicted it because it didn't follow the zoning permits and the newest update is he has recently received his notice his advanced tax notice that he will need to complete the empty homes tax property status declaration to say if anyone is living there and if no one is living on there and it is an underutilized residential property he will have to pay an additional 3% property tax for that empty lot how fucking aggravating i hope he can appeal or like get out of it cuz that's so stupid but yeah,
0: it's, it's so unbelievably frustrating. Like, of course, no one is living there. You won't let anything build. <laughs> Anyways, finally, uh, we end every episode of the Canby Report with a Vancouverada. And this week we are going to talk about the Canada post building. This is the building on Georgia street that you, uh, will know from the two giant, uh, coat of arms and heraldic achievements that are, uh, plastered on the side of the building. Uh, and is currently being redeveloped into the new Amazon headquarters uh, with expected completion in 2023. However, according to the book Vancouver Exposed by Eve Lazarus, uh, Searching for the City's Hidden History, there are some fascinating things about this building, including the fact that in the 1950s when it was
1: built, it was the largest welded steel structure in the world. We were really good in Vancouver at having... The largest X for at least a brief period of time. I think we had the tallest tower in the British Commonwealth and things like that for little bits.
0: Yeah. So this building was put up in the 1950s. It had a helipad on top that was used all of
1: two times. Uh, I was going to say, Canada Post, known for their helicopter mail delivery.
0: Yeah. So basically what happened is they found out that using the helipad to deliver mail from Vancouver airport to the Canada post building was, uh, not viable. And so it was never used (laughs) No. So that there was also quite a bit of art in there, including some art by Paul Huba, which took up a chunk of wall inside the Southeast corner of the building. There was those two big coats of arms as I mentioned as well as a 16 foot postman cut into Swedish red granite adjacent to the Homer street entrance Uh, inside. There was a mural by Oliver Fisher depicting the evolution of mail delivery. And uh, there's also inside a, a mural, a tiled, uh, mural that will be reinstalled. Once the post building opens up again as the Amazon headquarters that was comprised of 264 hand-glazed tiles that weighed about 840 kilos uh, that were all affixed to a concrete brick wall. That is going to be reassembled when the Post gets its new
1: Amazon tenant. It's quite the ironic or fitting symbol of the transition of the Canadian economy that the Canada Post building is being taken over by Amazon, I think, in a kind of dystopian way. Yeah, yeah, the irony is not lost,
0: but mercifully, they did preserve the international style exterior, which is nice. I, I like it. Historical preservation, I think is an important part of, uh, any city's growth and planning strategy, uh, tearing down everything and conducting urban renewal is, uh, often very destructive and it does lose some parts of a city's heritage in, uh, those demolition derbies so. It's nice to see that uh, something is being done to preserve this unique piece of architecture uh, that was effectively a giant machine for sorting mail and now of course is
1: completely gutted and being redeveloped into this office building for Canada, for Amazon rather. Construction for that is tentatively planned between fall 2022 and fall 2023. So another year to go or two.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Like in Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor.
1: I'm Ian Bushfield. Have a great afternoon.